Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. This is the AV Testing Podcast, and I'm Yay! Alan, and he's Brent, and yay, this is episode 133, is that correct? That is. And by now, everyone should be finding our podcast. I changed hosts for a couple reasons, and it didn't go as smoothly as I wanted, because I realized that, one, I thought it was bad that a lot of a lot of uh, podcast hosts make their own feeds, which actually I can see why they do that, so I'm not mad at them. But it turns out a lot of them base their feed purely on the iTunes feed, which is weird, versus the source feed, but that's okay. But it just took longer to get the Apple uh, iTunes feed updated, but it looks like it's all set, so now you should be hearing this. This is our second podcast of 2020. We love all of you. And hey, do you know how you find out more about the podcast, Brent? You go to abtesting.com. You do not go to abtesting.com. What do we talk about on here? A thing that's not really modern and a thing that's not really testing. Do you know the answer to that question, Brent? Yes. Yes, I do. You can go to moderntesting.org. <laughs> you, oh, Oh, I guess I didn't. Which is the site, uh, a domain we got a couple of years ago for started talking about this that used to direct to A-B testing uh, on my Angry Weasel site, but now it goes to actualmoderntesting.org. Uh, I've set it up as a real website. Uh, nice. We'll yeah. It's uh, not super pretty, but happy to take volunteer web developers and the way to get involved with anything you want behind the scenes on the podcast is to go to moderntesting.org and in the sparse amount of text there, find the link to join our Slack group, one of the three .com. How's that for an intro and get everybody hooked? I'll give you a minute to go find that website and log in and say hi. Right. Uh, clone the GitHub repo and yeah, we and got we got repos <laughs> and Brent typing while he's talking again, which I don't like. Well, I can't remember. Were we recording when I said that the hard time thing is I can't punch you? We were, weren't we? Okay. Um, the first things first before we get starting with a couple topics today is Brent wanted to talk about balls. I did. <laughs> and you can't see this on the podcast, but right behind me in my luxurious office here uh, in East Seattle, otherwise known as Issaquah, Washington, is some balls. Uh, it's a mighty fine stack of some big balls. They're soccer balls, except for one <laughs> rugby ball. The rugby ball is the outlier. I got that on a trip to uh, New Zealand and Australia. That's an Australian replica rug just a souvenir rugby ball i got in australia the rest are ever since um for many years i don't have all of them up there but for the past 20 24 years or so i have procured myself every year they design it every four years when there's a world cup that's a tournament for soccer or football it's a game that's the most populous one in the world, but popular. But anyway. Uh, oh, Super Bowl. That's like in two weeks. Oh, God. I don't even know who's <laughs> in it. Uh, I, I lost interest. Um, although the funny tangent is here, but I'll, I'll finish the story first. No tangent. Oh. Is I every World Cup, they make a specific ball and I get a ball from that World Cup and save it and never play it. I just kind of, so I have brand new 
Soccer balls, footballs from every World Cup uh, back to uh, before Korea. So that must have been maybe back to the U.S. run, the first U.S. run. Anyway, what was I going to tangent on? I don't remember. doesn't matter. The Olympics. The Olympics. No. Wrong. Oh. oh. Guess again. Um, all, right. all right. So okay. I one, one thing I'm curious, though. So one of the soccer balls... Looks like it's impaled by a Frisbee. That is purely an optical illusion. There's okay. actually some <laughs> other crap laying up there that's not a soccer ball. It's just balls and a couple of things they threw up there. Gotcha. All right. Because I was wondering what the hell that was. But it's an optical illusion. All right. Thanks for coming to our podcast, everyone. Well, we can skip the politics session for t- this week. Uh, there's stuff happening, and they're still idiots, just like always. They're just more prominent now. I don't know. Do you want to do the the podcast podcast, or is it too early in the episode for that? It. it I mean, it's uncharacteristic early. And we're like I mean, five minutes in. I feel like we should just like wait for five minutes and then start. But why well, don't maybe, we? Well, maybe maybe ten minutes in. No, we why don't should... we do this? Because this is because <laughs> sometimes we talk about like what's been going on and. And why don't we talk about the article I posted two weeks ago? Maybe it's uh, Tuesday of last week. And uh, we talked. Let's talk about that. So last time on the podcast, (laughs) insert clip here. No, I'm too lazy. Uh, We were talking about this idea of mindsets and skill sets and how it never quite sat right. And I was working on an article on it. And uh, I went that weekend after the podcast and finished the article. I just needed to get some ideas going and posted to uh, exactly the reaction I expected. And the gist of the article, if you haven't read it, you can find it in my Five for Friday last week or in my Twitter feed. I don't have the URL memorized, but it's on the the, uh, blog.testproject.io. And the gist of it was that I argued the fact that uh, folks like Michael Bolton and James Bach have posted that shifting from a creator's mindset to a tester's mindset requires a massive and difficult mind shift. I I poo-pooed that and gave some examples. I said, those are really skill sets and there's no block that developers can't do very, very good testing. And as expected, 90% of the replies were, duh, yeah, thank you. It's it's funny how I can get, this happens a lot, because uh, I like to try and toe the line a little bit, is for as many people as I get, I get people agreeing, but I also get people saying, this is old news, why are people still talking about this? This is dumb. And other people thinking like I'm killing a cat. I'm on the the old news camp, right? There's a reason why we call what we've done modern testing. Right? The other thing to point out that I always want to point out is you're probably going to get to, but I'm on a roll and I'm riled up, is that Sorry, go for we it. didn't invent anything with modern testing. And we've been accused, I've been accused of inventing something that's harming the craft. And Brent, did we invent anything at all? Um, that answer is no. We we invented a name. Yeah, we put a name to something <laughs> that we were seeing. If you go back to our very, very first podcast, don't listen to it. Trust me, we're much better now. As bad as it is, we're better now. Uh, we, were, we just wanted to talk about what we were seeing to help people who may be going through the same thing not freak out. And what we see is people putting their heads in the sand and freaking out. 
If people want to give us credit for this, obviously it's wrong and inappropriate. Uh, it's it, it's interesting because I actually, uh, as you know, we are not harming the craft. The craft has long since been under threat. And what we are doing for those who listen are, are protecting the craftsmen, right? It's essentially, um, God, normally I can load a metaphor here, right? Uh, but there's a long like set a of- biscuit in a wood shredder. Wait, is that <laughs> right? No? <laughs> no, I, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, normally I go back to um, cobalt, right? Or, or cobalt, not cobalt. That's cobalt is an element. Cobalt <laughs> is a programming Christ. language. I swear, yeah. while, while I am chronologically older, that you are a dimensioned old man. Go on. Um, yeah, I definitely resemble that fact. Like, Alan, to me, in some regard, like, continuing this discussion on is Tess dying, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I, I've, right? I, I won't even play that game anymore. No, it's it's like I'm already starting conversations and starting to bring up uh, that in my view, we are right now at the beginning of the end of the data science uh, uh, specialist yeah, era. But there will be people holding on to that specialty for decades as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because um, it's a special. I went to school for this. I studied this. I put a lot of heart and soul into it. Please don't take it away. I'm unwilling to adapt. Uh, there will be that. Maybe, maybe. The problem is right now, uh, there's a glut of folks coming out of school with that, and they're not able to, to, to sort of land the job and the career. Uh, and that would be true even if we weren't in, a, in the midst of a COVID nightmare. So what, one point I want to make, and of course, I I have Bolton and Bach muted, uh, not blocked, but muted on Twitter. So sometimes they can show up. I'm not sure how the muting algorithm works, actually. Uh, but it was pointed out to me that the response to uh, Bach on my article was that I thought it was interesting. I see exactly where he's coming from, but I think it's bullshit as well. Uh, he said something to the effect of, Unless, Alan, you've studied social sciences, you really don't get testing, uh, which says, <laughs> says two things to me. One is for the testing one, uh, first answer, huh? Two, I don't know how, I mean, sure, if you want to, I'm not going to deny some applicability, maybe, and I'm giving in the benefit of the doubt on number two. But number three is, huh? Again. So for number three, it's just, I don't care. Re repeat the quote. It was, I, I'm paraphrasing. It was, people do is, if they're not quite sure how to engage me on something, they know that Bolton and Bach would be pissed about. They just tag him. They tag him in on Twitter. And right. uh, apparently Bach came in. I just glanced at it because, again, because how meat works. But something to the effect of, unless you've been studying social sciences, this isn't really what they're doing isn't really testing. And that's what I wanted to get to is historically, historically, if you look what Bach has done to Elizabeth Hendrickson and Lisa Crispin, where he's, I've seen him say like, because he hasn't seen them test, they're not good testers. And it's like, he has the 
authority to decide what good testing is and what good testing isn't. And he doesn't. Not in a million years. You know who gets to decide? Nobody, actually. Customers closely. They get to evaluate quality. And here's the trick. Here's the thing you and I agree on, which comes out to be the crux of all these these people who get stuck in celebrating the craft, is they care 1,000% more about testing than they do about quality. Yes. And I, I mean, that's the part I'm a, that I'm a dentist slaps me, that slaps me in the face. It's like, I just do not get how you can... I love the craft and I was deep in the man. I want to learn a lot about testing. I know a lot about testing. I'm going to talk about testing. I'm going to write a book about testing, but which I did, as you know, and I don't like it anymore because what I care about now is quality. Customers don't care what testing we did. They don't care if I'm a skilled practitioner of the arts and social sciences and testing. They don't care if I can ask 101 totally dumb straw man argument questions about testing. They care if the product solves their problem in a way that they enjoy. Just say true. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, true. Hallelujah. And amen. Part of the, I mean, there's so many things that came out in what you were just saying. Like, number one, um, Brent, that, that I, I don't statement, know what you're doing, but get to the point. We talked about this last time, so let's, let's get, get to it, man. <laughs> number one, um, yeah, there is a, a good deal of of ivory towerism in his statement there, right? It's unless you have studied sociology, no, you social don't know. sciences. I'll I'll find the quote. And again, coming from where he's coming from, and again, every behavior has a motivation. Oh sure. And I'll, I'll look up the tweets here in a second. I'll stop trying to type while I or, or type on my phone while I talk. But uh, from his view. Testing is the most important thing, doing good testing. His client, his only stakeholder, is the person who's made that software. And for, so for that angle, yeah, he wants to do the very best job, find the best report, give the, give the stakeholder all the information because from that school, they're not decision makers, they're information providers. And for a lot of people, it's all about the customer. So the focus is different. So we think about things differently. I get where he's coming from. I vehemently disagree with it, but he's not spouting nonsense. As much as I really kind of don't like the guy, I think he's smart. What he's essentially saying, like you and I have talked about many a times that the activity of testing is important. Number one. Uh Uh-huh. Number no, two. no argument. No argument. Number two, and and, the, and I guess number three, the thing that, so that's one place I, I think we're in vehement agreement. The, the thing that I guess continues to befuddle me is given the, there's some mounting evidence uh, on your side on, on, on the mindset discussion uh, it being a skill set versus yeah. a mindset. So, so let me let me give you the exact exchange no, uh, when you're okay. when you're ready. Let me give, I'm going to give you the exact exchange. I don't want to go too deep into this. I don't feel it's fair, regardless of my opinions. I don't want to go into rank on somebody on the podcast when I wouldn't engage them on Twitter. But I went and looked it up because I only glanced at it uh, when it was pointed out to me. Responding to my post with my article, someone replied and of course tagged in Michael and James and said. Oh, they brought up the idea of the problem of critical distance, which is a nice term 
that I could find very little information on to define it and try and rebut it. But the idea is that because I wrote it, I can't test it, which again, my reply was, I found this theory to be largely false in my experience, which is absolutely true. I'm not, not trying to be provoking. I have found people, I have found critical distance to be not just false, but a flat out falsehood which is the same yeah. thing. So then uh, James jumped in and said, in my experience, you've never studied this stuff. Or did you start reading the literature on cognitive biases, boundary objects, social forms of life, and sense-making while we weren't looking? Which I thought was kind of a passive-aggressive dick move. Oh, I didn't even look at the replies, but there's more after that. But the thing is, we're coming from different places. And, and I like to believe I'm coming from a place that's going to help people who are in test roles be not just keep their jobs, which some people are worried about and worried about the right testing happening. What we're talking about on the podcast, I want to help people freaking thrive as software changes and adapts and figure out how they can take all of this, I already closed the tweet, cognitive social stuff and apply it to all this stuff. If you do it right, it applies to building an entire learning organization like Peter Senge talks about, which I, that's a, that's a, what I try and strive for. I use everything I learned in the critical thinking and systems thinking that I used as a tester to build an organization that is capable of delivering predictably and with high quality. I use the same skills. I just don't use them to do one aspect of software delivery. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Uh, the other thing I was going to say on this one, because I have the thread loaded up and and Bach was coming in with all sorts of, you know, how social creatures work, right? And that's actually one of the things I think is brilliant around, like, we've talked about it repeatedly on, on TDD. The one of the things that's brilliant about TDD is the, the person's writing the test before the code. Yes, it, does, it, does it solve cognitive bias? No. But damn, Alan, it sure helps mitigate it, right? It just just in the fact that it creates a much better code base for for testing in general, it it reduces the that risk. And in terms of cognitive bias, right? Uh, I'll just be quite honest. Even if test were uh, that the assumption there is test is able to maintain objectivity and, and not be biased as they go through their testing. And that, that by itself is fundamentally false, right? Even if their statements were true, I would argue that that, that, a, that occurs even amongst the craftsmen today. So in my mind, that, 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 that statement is true on both sides and therefore can be safely ignored. The one thing that puzzles me here, right? And, and this is the thing, and we can go on to another topic if you want um, after this, but the one thing I just don't understand, if they view your article, and we don't have evidence here, but if, if your article is viewed as a, as a direct threat to sort of you know the dogma that, that they're talking, in the face of of the bi not the bias in the face of the the evidence that we that we're seeing that contradicts this uh, contradicts their point of view like I, I just don't understand like I, I completely agree that that 
um, testing is is important. But why are they so reluctant to encourage, invite, and market amongst developers? Well, why are they so oh, reluctant? Why are, now why you, are they so- you already stole my next topic, but yeah. And oh, this is sorry. why maybe I can't get in their heads. I don't want to actually insert myself into other feuds they've had. Uh, many of our listeners have heard those, but I want to skip that. But if you look at... One of the things I love about Elizabeth Hendrickson's exploratory testing book is it specifically talks about teaching developers exploratory testing. <gasps> and what I've noticed in my everything, you know, I, I don't just make this stuff up. We watch stuff. I read, we, I read books and articles and try and put it all together. I want to look for a full systems view of what's happened, not just what you and I are seeing, what's happening across the industry. And I got to tell you, what I find more and more and more is when we go to highlight stuff, like I think of everything we've highlighted, chances are I can find an example of Elizabeth Hendrickson highlighting it eight to 10 years before we did. Yeah, well, she is pretty I was awesome. listening to uh, The Ideal Cast by Gene Kim, and I've tweeted a couple times about this, so worth calling up here. And I listened to her episodes specifically. There's one that's an interview and one that's some outtakes of a, a conference talk she gave in 2014 and 2015 that kind of backed up the point. She was talking for a while around this article that she wrote with some other folks and Kim Kaner. What they did, there's like 17 of these tests. This is like 2001 this is a ways back. This is when you and I still thought testing was the schnitzel. Yeah. And she was meeting with these folks, and they're trying to fig- answer the age-old question, what's the right ratio of developers to testers? And as you know, at Microsoft, it used to be almost one-to-one, and Windows was almost two-to-one in some groups. And they wanted when, to answer when the I question. Started, when I started, it was two-to-one. So the way they did it, yeah, and what my answer has always been, even very early on, I when I was in... I didn't really care about it until I was an EE and had to think about engineering excellence group at Microsoft. And I realized the only, so when did I join that group? About 2005. So I'm still behind. The only right answer for that question is it depends. Or as I learned to put it shortly after, if you're asking about ratios, you're asking the wrong question. So what they did as a thought experiment, a good little affinity exercise was they asked people to think of what was the ratio on the team that had the best project ever as far as delivery and quality what was the ratio of devs to test and what was the worst quality what was the biggest on the biggest train wreck you ever worked on what was the ratio and they didn't find a lot of correlation on the high quality products but they found massive correlation on the low quality train wreck products they all had a very high tester to developer ratio you and i are not surprised 2001 you and i may have been surprised i gotta tell you that so in passing there, one of the things she said, and this is, she just gets it, but she, like you and I, we try and stir the water. She just knows. She's like the, she's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi waiting for us to learn this stuff, I think. She <laughs> said, just in passing, was talking about a test team. Like, I can't even fathom the idea of a ded- dedicated test team. Like, ugh, I, I don't even get why that would even be a thing anymore. And, you know, it is a thing. And people are proud of their dedicated test teams. Anyway. The point you got to on ownership is interesting, and I want to use that, or, or actually the point you made that I just totally screwed the pooch on, the point you made was, why aren't they talking to developers about doing better testing? And I have an answer, right. but it's flippant, even though I think it's right, so I'm going to skip it. But 
I want to talk about developer testing and it's sort of a piggyback on that last article I wrote. Let me go back to 2015 when I went to Google Test Automation Conference in Kirkland. Uh, It was the second or third one I went to and a whole bunch of talks. I wasn't presenting. I was just watching. It was in Kirkland. You know, humans are good at pattern matching. And very quickly, I noticed a pattern that if I would have turned into a drinking contest would have killed me. This is how many times each talk said the two word phrase flaky tests. I wanted to call it the flaky test conference. Uh, mm. It's a problem that you and I have dealt with for years and years and years. Developers write about, and this is especially true, especially true today in the world of Selenium and lots of automation teams. Not only is a dedicated team, a dedicated test automation team. Uh, and they write a bunch of tests and they're proud of the fact they have 100,000 tests, but 5,000 of them are weird and flaky and they do things like run them again or run them 10 times or they pass once, that's good. I'll just delete them because they don't want to run the flaky tests, only ones that don't tell us any information. And that bugged me. And there's a solution for this I want to get to. But the other thing I was going to mention is Accelerate. In you've heard us mention this book called Accelerate, written by Nicole Forsgren and some other people. We love that book. People love the Dora metrics, the um, the 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 four DevOps metrics that tell you if you're going to be high quality. Well, a lot of reviews of the book leave out some other important indicators of quality. And there's one you've highlighted on the podcast before. I want to highlight for you. Then I'm going to ask you a question and stop talking. And let you answer and ponder for me. Okay. She's talking about automated testing in the book. Yes. And she says, first, the code becomes more testable when developers write tests. Second, when developers are responsible for the automated tests, they care more about them and will invest more effort into maintaining and fixing them. And what she's found here is the thing she's underlying is that when developers own the automated testing, those tests are higher quality and the product's higher quality. There's a correlation between developers owning the tests and product quality. Mm-hmm. So let me give you a rant with a setup statement. And I've talked, I've been on my soapbox almost long enough here. So given that there's scientific correlation proving this, and given that in my experience, writing, especially UI end-to-end automation is one of the most difficult programming tasks you can do properly yep. and non-flaky. And given the fact that almost every time I talk to folks who write these sort of end-to-end UI automation tests, they're doing it because it's the only level that the code is testable at. Given all this data, why don't... I see a given. Developers should write every single automated test. Ever. Always. And that'll even piss off some of our listeners. I know we have avid listeners who love what we do, who still spend a lot of their day writing test automation. I don't think it works. I think it's we've fallen into this weird rut where it's work that the developers don't want to do. But all it, according to studies here and according to everything I've seen, it results in lower quality. If you want to raise the quality of your team, everyone, if you're not developing the code, don't write automated tests for it. Number one, I mean, do you want? I mean, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. Like what? What? Well, agree with it in an eloquent way that will allow our listeners to get a second point of view and be less mad at me and well, I can have a drink of tea. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I'm still thinking around the prior conversation and the cognitive bias issue. Okay. And one of the issues, even if test had 
perfect ability to to look at the code and be objective and and do the right thing, which which again they don't, because uh, they turned out to be just as human as the developers who wrote the code. Okay, it is very rare in my experience that test has sufficient power for action to be taken. Okay, and and of course the RST model will will address that because that's not their job. Their job is to provide information. Okay. And information provided that no one takes action on has, um, I would imagine, a remarkably low impact to quality. Now, even even further, one of the things that that they called out, so that study that 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 Nicole did in in Accelerate, it calls out two things. It's essentially they found that automation only correlated to a high-functioning software, I, I forget their actual definition, but to good software, when the dev owned the automation. Right. In other words, when test owned it, they found no correlation to that automation improving the software. No, and, and anecdotally, I can tell you why. And there will be people that will dismiss this. Let me explain... I don't think this is going to be made up. Let me tell you why this works. I find it funny that the only I'm going to start with the test pyramid. And I find it funny that the only people who gripe about it and try and uh, dismiss it as, uh, as useless are testers. So all the test automation pyramid says, people get freaked out about the model. Of course, all models are useful and some are wrong. The reason why it works is today developers write code. Most developers, I'm, we're getting to a point where I think the vast majority of developers at least write unit tests. And I'm on the record saying that that's a minimum job requirement, which is great. They write nice little happy path tests to make sure things work as expected. But then they throw stuff over the wall. So the, the, the shit they're throwing over the wall is just less smelly than it was 20 years ago in many cases. So what happens is uh, with poorly architected code, we get these testers trying to test all these end-to-end scenarios, almost black box-like. I see questions all over the internet, all over forums, all over Twitter on what do I do to make Selenium find this element? I It's really hard. I have to use an X-Path. And even though it's ugly, sometimes it changes and my tests are really flaky. Yeah, absolutely true. The big answer to those is, get your devs to add IDs to your elements, which is great. But they go, how do I get my devs to do that? If it doesn't help, it's like a, it just is a sad, sad story to watch. So let's flip that around and watch what happens when a developer owns those tests. Because developers like, and maybe I think it's fair to say that most developers are lazy. The good ones are. The best developers I know are also lazy. And if they get to the point, they have to write this, this automated test in Selenium and they go, well, this sucks. I don't want to write this test. This is a stupid waste of my time. So then they go fix their code and they fix their architecture so they can test for things that need to be tested at the lowest possible level. 
Only in the environment where they don't have a tester, because as you call out, developers are lazy. If they have a tester and can right. with a with a five word email, right. but the second say, the you second they own the automation, they will fix right. their architecture to make the code more testable, and guaranteed what they end up creating will look a lot more like the test pyramid because they're only going to write those big, flaky, ugly tests for things that can absolutely only be tested there. And it doesn't mean there's not a role for people with critical thinking. And I, actually, that's a I don't like that because I think a lot of developers have those skills. They aren't like special things that only people who've been blessed with a special tester's mindset can have. Uh, Nicole does go on to say, it's the point I wanted to talk about in that same paragraph. She does say, none of this means that we should be getting rid of testers. Testers serve an essential role in the software delivery cycle. I disagree with her slightly. Uh, I in 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 there's in a lot book. of caveats there. I think she's trying to. I think she's weaseling out a little bit. Love you, Nicole. Sorry. I think she did wanted to avoid any backlash there. But you and I both know it can. Yeah. I think the point here she wants to avoid is the cult of oh I've heard teams don't need testers. Let's get rid of them all. It's ripping off the band aid when it's a tourniquet. It's getting rid of the net without first lowering the rope. Uh, that's I think. There are caveats there, but uh, so I can see where she's coming from. But yeah, you can absolutely make world-class, high-quality software without any dedicated testers on the team. Conversely, and as I tweeted, you can you and I won't pick. We'll let some so a self-proclaimed testing expert of their own choice pick the top five testers in the world. If you put them on a dysfunctional product team, there there's no way they're ever going to ship anything that customers like. Well, with the typical with the typical processes that I'm used to, right? Because when you have that, then the the dev team optimizes for, hey, it's fun time. I get to write more code, and when when we ship shit, uh, I get to be blameless, and that doesn't help the business. It doesn't help the customer, right? Um, right. So we have data from Nicole that says that developer owned automation is better for your product. Yeah. So given that and how much there's this, I'll say it, there is a industry infatuation with end-to-end -end tests. That's, that's unhealthy. Agreed. To me, the solution is obvious. Have the devs own it. The right architecture will happen both in the testing, test automation architecture and in the dev architecture. It's, it's, it couldn't, if it was painted in pink paint, actually I'm red colorblind, if it was painted in yellow paint uh, a thousand feet high, uh, it couldn't be more clear to me. Why is it that industry-wise, we, uh, we're not there? What, what am I seeing or what's wrong with my view? Because it's so obvious to me, how come as an industry, we're still infatuated with having people who aren't the developers of the code try and write end-to-end -end tests for it as the primary means of testing? Uh, because... No, you you know the answer to it. It's because it's seductive. It, it, like you can get a really low trained, uh, low skilled person uh, to try and it again, out. Again, why take the thing that look? I've written shipping software in operating systems used by millions and millions of people, and I'm telling you, writing non flaky end to end automation is harder. I would rather go fix kernel bugs. 
I'd be more confident about changing the Windows kernel or the Xbox kernel, same thing, than I would about trying to write an end-to-end test that was always going to be value and non-flaky. Yeah. And we're going to put newbies on that? Here. Go for it. No, it, it, it's again, well, and you've seen it, right? It's, it's UI, it's newbies, right? You, you just hook up, you just hook up to a recorder script and just click around and look, you've got a kick-ass uh, automation suite. And, that, and actually, I want to say, because- That uh, reproduces, that continuously will reproduce the results until the next build. Here's the thing. I want to interrupt here because- <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. I think these click and record things- I used to hate them and think they were stupid because I was thinking about them as a trying to create a test suite, but it gives me a way to do some exploratory automation. Like I just here, I want to go do this set of actions a thousand times and I don't care if it fails. I'm just going to do the clicky, clicky, clicky record and then wrap it in a loop and go home for the night. That's valuable. It's not a test I'm going to run on every build, but it, it gives me an opportunity to do what I call exploratory test automation. Let me link together some actions. Let me make a monkey test. The other thing, right? So because it's a monkey test, right? That's what attracts the, the that's why it's attractive to assign these to sort of low skilled people, right? Because, because. Well, let's not let's hire a better monkey in some regards, right? But the problem is these low-skilled people don't have the experience around what it's going to take to maintain it, mm-hmm. what it's going to take to actually get it to work. And I, I think in some regard, like at the end of the day, here is one place where I will say I'm, I won't use our, our, our typical answer of it depends because here, like I don't have an answer, but I know where the answer is. And the answer is going to be, let's follow the incentive model. Let's, let's go follow how people are reviewed. Let's go follow that part of the process of developing a software. And, and there, I think we're going to discover um, the cause. While you were talking, I thought of something else. Because um, I thought about clicky, 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 monkey, monkey, monkey. And then... What I find in uh, the reports from some of the folks who, who love the craft, and and again, I love I I don't mean to make fun of anybody. Just just, just pointing out where I disagree, and and not just that I disagree, but why. Uh, there was a time when we didn't know what customers did, didn't know how they used our software. We tried to find what we thought were the bugs that they would find, but we were just guessing. We heard things like no customer would ever do that, but then they did, and. I still think today with some of these folks, I have seen examples of them. I talked about infatuation with the end-to-end automation, but they're infatuated with the edge case bug. And the difference today is, and I, I think edge cases, given millions and millions of requests for users, the edge cases are much more likely to happen. But the difference is today is we have the data to go see. We see, say I run this weird made-up test I make and it finds a crash. Yay, I found a crash. Go fix this bug. And in the old days, someone may say, no, this will never happen in the real world. But what we can do now is we can go to our data and see. And says, actually, the cool thing is maybe we found something that 100, 200, 1,000 users have seen never been able to re- never been able to reproduce. And now at least we have a path to reproduce it. So that's better. I- I'm off on a tangent. I, I just don't get it. I- I- I'm not particularly smart. I'm not particularly dumb either, but to me, it's just so obvious that we shouldn't have people who aren't the developers of the code writing automation. I don't get it. 
like I, I'm again thinking back on the the cognitive bias discussion, right? I, I'm I am <clears throat> I'm trying to puzzle through on this one. I have not, as you know, I'm a data scientist. I have not seen. I do not have access to Nicole's data, but I have no reason to believe that she and her team are anything other than highly competent in this craft. Yeah, I am, in, I in am this competent. Work. She's, yeah, she's not only smarter than I am, she has done this stuff for years. She knows exactly what she's doing. In fact, the methods of their research are documented heavily in the second half of that book. Yes, I've gone through that. Let's assert then that that fact is true, right? When devs own the automation, there is a correlation, Okay. Now, she did not say causation. She said correlation, which then generally means either a high-quality product is causing uh, devs to own it or that devs owning it is causing the high-quality product. And actually, both could be true. Yeah, and I'd say she focused on DevOps metrics and their correlation, which is good. But I would say on teams where developers own all of the automation – I'm guessing they probably have some other modern practices in place as well, leading to that quality. I think my hunch is that practice is an indicator that they have a, as we put in modern testing land, a mature quality culture. Oh, I I completely agree. But let's talk about it. Let's assume that they don't, right? Let's say you and I are going to start up a startup. Okay, and we're going to explicitly only hire like the old schooliest of the old school developers. Yeah, because they can't get jobs anywhere else. Sure. These these are ones that have been for decades brainwashed that they are incapable of doing their own testing. Yep. And and they've been told that by their best friends, the testers. And, and so when you're in my fictitious company. That's who we're going to hire. We're going to hire only those folks, and we're going to hire exactly zero testers. And we're going to say, you are accountable for for this automation. I do think we will eventually see, uh, I can't predict the amount of time, but we will eventually see that quality dramatically improves. I I believe so also. And some of that via attrition when some of them just give up and quit. But but I get what you're talking about. They well no. So I I want to cover three cases here. Okay. Okay. Number one, uh, they suddenly see the light and and they build up a great test suite. Two, well actually I'm just going to skip ahead to the thing I wanted to talk about. So let's say these old schoolers, right? They they all going to put in one or two unit tests uh, that are craptastic. Okay, and uh, then they have fulfilled the, the, our requirement on them. They own their automation suite. We, we will put no requirements on the number of test cases. We will put no requirements on whether or not they pass or fail. We'll put no requirements uh, other than they own it, and it is run regularly, uh, daily, maybe. I don't know. It's my metaphor. I'm making things up. Now, we, though, will make one strong stance, right? Your, your review will be heavily weighted off of uh, the customer experience or customer retention. Actually, there we go. 
Your review is weighted off of customer retention. That's it. It's a Microsoft review heavy for a uh, thing. I'll, I'll just say they get a bonus target based on customer retention, um, which I think is separate from the review. But I, I get I get where you're going. Sure, sure. I mean, we can modify it. I'm just tying customer retention to their incentive model. Okay? All right. I predict that with that incentive model change, those oldest of the old school people will either leave to a company with an incentive model that they understand or will suddenly become kick-ass automation yeah, writers. I, what all f- Let me actually give you a different ground there because, as you know from Dan Pink, people are motivated by, by enough money where it's not an issue, so they might not, might not be the thing, purpose, mastery, autonomy. Yes. And what I've seen actually supports that model because I've coached, I've taught old school, never written a test developers to write tests. And they've been told so long that testing is this dark art. And yes, I'm talking about real testing. I've seen developers find bugs that that my biggest biggest opponents would never find. They're good. But they they can learn to test. And once they get over that hump, because they've been told for so long that they can't test, they believe it. Right. And once you get them over that hump and you stop lying to them and show them what real testing is and how to do it and how to evaluate risk and how to not just test the happy path. And again, I got somebody replied and said, well, you can have developers test, but only test the happy path. And I said, Jesus, help them. That's the whole point help them because they haven't done it before. They're not stupid. It just drives me crazy. We're back to the original topic. But anyway, what I've seen is they actually don't need that money. They need expectations. They need autonomy and mastery and and a little bit of coaching and purpose. They know it's important. What I've seen is they get motivated just by them figuring out they know what to do. As you were talking, one last thing I wanted to say is when I see folks harp on the test automation pyramid, they look at it as a model they have to fit and they don't like it because they, well, it's contextual. It may be different from my product. And of course, but really the way to think of the model is if your software is well architected and well testable, it'll nat- your test automation will naturally look like that. So that's my point. Hey, if you're a tester and you're writing a bunch of automated tests, just stop it. If you have to do it to stay employed, do that. But I believe higher quality software comes from developer-owned test automation. Well, it's and it's not a belief. Well, the belief, the belief is the cause. You know it's correlated. And it goes right back to the point we made towards the beginning of the podcast. We're not trying to preach some new idea. I am telling you, this is happening. People have been doing this and it's working. Arguing with me that I'm wrong doesn't make these facts go away. I'm just, you know, it, I'm just it, highlighting some things that are happening. The only point of doing that argument, honestly, is to, is to make an emotional plea. Yeah. Right? That's All right. And again, I'm, I I get where they're coming from, the, these opponents. So I, I, again, largely, largely positive response on the, fir- the first article. I'll write a follow-up soon and 
see if I can anger a different crowd of people, which, and again, I don't, I'm not doing this stuff to be controversial. I want people to understand what's going on around them. That's my soapbox for the day. Anything else before we call it a call it an afternoon there, Brent? Yeah, there was something else I wanted to say, but no, we're good. You can save it for 134. 134? That's our next episode, right? Oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah. So the, what that reminds me is I was watching a, a listening to a radio show. I For some reason, I thought you added three days to January 134. There's this new meme that I have to say I find appealing. And, and that is uh, to keep counting, adding days to December such that uh, this is still considered part of 2020 because everyone wants 2020 to be over. Yep, I've seen that. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. For those who... Are you Brent? I am. I must be Alan. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.